All right, Ephesians 5, 23 to 33. Okay, <laughs> so here we go. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that might, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourished and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and to the church. However, let each one of you love his wife and as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, Tony, if you want to come up, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, Lord God, I'm just so thankful for the way you gift us, and thankful for the way you gifted Tony. Uh, ultimately, God, our gifts are to be used to glorify you. So I ask that today you'd be glorified through the preaching of your word, that you would be magnified, Lord, that we would see more of how amazing you are. Uh, encourage our hearts, convict our hearts, challenge our hearts, Lord, change us. Holy Spirit, work today and move through us and as this sermon is preached to us and use Tony in a powerful way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. <clears throat> okay. Okay. So there are a few sections of scripture that are so controversial in today's society as this one. Can we start off just by acknowledging that one? If, you, if, if I just got up in front of a crowd, a mixed audience in this city, and yelled out, wives, submit to your husbands, how well do you think that that would, that would go over, like on the steps of, of the, the Capitol downtown? It's controversial. This is a controversial passage. It, it cuts against the grain for our society. Do you understand what I say by that? It, it cuts against our natural inclinations, the types of beliefs and ideals that we've been raised with. Um, really, in our society, the word submission by itself is almost like a bad word. right? If I just say to you, submit, you probably have a natural negative reaction to it and that's submission of any kind and so if I tell you you know you're a student and I say submit to your teacher or if you're a you're a child and I say submit to your parent if you're a worker and I say submit to your boss you probably have stories to tell me about your boss um, submission is hard at all let alone the idea of submission of a wife to her husband. It's controversial. The truth is, whenever um, we say something like, wives, submit to your husbands, often what is heard is, wives, submit to the abuse of your husbands. For us, in our culture, in our time, Issues of abuse are wrapped up in this subject, which is why the section is so controversial. 
On top of that, we live in a day and in an age when many of the terms that are used in this passage are in the process of being redefined. Um, what is a wife? What is a husband? What is marriage? Those terms are all being redefined in popular culture. Gender itself, the idea that someone could be a wife or be a husband because they are male or female is being redefined. So that the concept, the very concept of gender is considered fluid. Whenever the terms of a passage like this are completely redefined, whenever a sentence like wives submit to your husbands is reinterpreted as wives submit to the abuse of your husbands, sections like this become completely meaningless. And so there are a couple of responses that people have because they, they hear the words of this section and they it doesn't jive with what they think and what they know, what they've been taught as they've grown up in our culture. And so they do one of two things. They can ignore it. And so you say, I like the teachings of Jesus. I think he's a pretty cool guy. Um, we're just not going to, we're just going to skip over this one, right? We're just going to ignore it. It's a fluke. We're just, we're not going to look at it. Or it can be something to be actively fought against, right? Not only do we just ignore it, but we look at the verses and we say, this is wrong, this is dangerous, this is bad. That's a common, a common attitude that's put towards these, these scriptures. And it would be tempting for me to, like, to say, okay, that is how the world is. But we in this room, we all know better, right? We're the enlightened ones. Um, but I think that that would be foolish for me to do because I think the truth is, is that many of us struggle here. We struggle with these verses. Maybe it's because we've seen abuse. We've seen real abuse. We've seen a wife that keeps her mouth shut while her husband rails against her night after night or beats up on her. Some of you have worked in women's shelters in the past, volunteered. You've heard those stories. Uh, maybe some of you like, have experienced in a real way same-sex attraction so that whenever you hear the redefinition of what husbands and wives and marriage is, that appeals to you because you've been there. You feel that. Um, a lot of us probably feel really iffy on some of the gender stereotypes in our culture, right? So if you're a girl and you like to hunt and fish and climb trees, uh, you're looked at with suspect as not being feminine enough. Or if you're a guy who likes to not hunt or fish or climb trees, you'd rather read a book and talk about your feelings, you're, you're labeled as less than a man, right? So some of us, as we examine ourselves and we examine the gender stereotypes in our society, we think, yeah, I don't fit into those. So maybe gender should be redefined. Some of us have struggled with these things and so whenever we run into these teachings, there's part of us that recoils just a little bit. 
It's not just out there. I think it's among us as well. And so can we acknowledge that? That this is a struggle that's not just outside of the church. The struggle to read these words, to understand them, to apply them, is not just outside of those who love Jesus. In our culture, it's right here too. And so the question comes up, how do we move forward? If some of us experience some kind of struggle as we look at these teachings, how do we move forward? Do we ignore them? Do we reject them? Uh, hear this testimony. This is the testimony of the Holy Spirit to the church from its earliest days. It comes out of 2 Timothy. It'll be up on the board. I'm going to read this to you about scripture. It says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God, even the controversial ones, even the hard ones. So how do we move forward? We start here by acknowledging this truth that Ephesians 22 to 33 are the very words of God. And they're good not just for some people, but for us. They're good for me, for changing me, for equipping me, for making me complete. That's where we start. And so the Spirit compels us to accept them, to dig into them, every scripture, and to hold them up like a mirror and ask really hard questions about ourselves. Do you get what I'm saying? Whenever we come to hard verses that we don't like or that culture tends to reject, it's our job as Christians who acknowledge the authority of God to hold them up, to read them, and to ask really hard questions about ourselves. Um, we're, we're not blank slates. Some of you who are wives or former wives may look at this and say, wives, submit to your husbands. You don't know my husband. You don't know what that's like. You may, husbands, you may look at this where it talks about loving your wives like Jesus, and you're like, you don't know my wife. She's unlovable at times, right? Like, there are times whenever you would say that to yourself. You would say, you don't know the details of my life and my experience. You don't know the hard questions I have to ask. But yet we're compelled to ask those questions. How do I, in my life, in my circumstances, apply these verses? We're not going to answer very many of those questions today. Uh, this is actually a two-parter. So next week, come back, we're going to get into the details of a lot of these hard questions. And you may be saying, Tony, you just built up all this pressure. I want to know. I want to think about these things. But hear me on this. Before we can ask hard questions, like, do I get an exception to this verse? because of my personal circumstances, 
we have to be anchored to the truth of the text. Do you understand me on that? Before I can start looking at this and asking questions about myself, I have to understand the core beliefs behind the passage. So I'm going to read again a verse from uh, the very end of our section. This is Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. Hear this. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Underneath the concept of marriage is another relationship. What is marriage? In, in one sense, marriage is an institution that is an image. That is of a, it's a picture of a deeper, greater relationship. Paul reads this verse out of, uh, out of, out of uh, Genesis. It says... Um, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's right there in the beginning, Adam and Eve at the creation. He looks back at that verse, and he says, this is a profound mystery. It's talking about Christ and the church, not just about you and your husband, you and your wife. And so for the rest of the time uh, this week, we're going to dig into that relationship the relationship between Christ and the church, because we cannot understand what a marriage relationship is supposed to be without understanding the relationship between, between Christ, Jesus, our Savior, and us, his church. Once we're rooted in this, we'll come back next week and we'll dig into all the messy realities of the relationships between husbands and wives. So let's circle back around to the first verse here. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And so there are a number of different roles and relationships that are listed over the next couple of verses. And the first one that's mentioned is Christ as the head of the church. When we say that Christ is the head of the church, we're really saying two separate things. We're saying two things at least. Number one, that he's the leader of the church. Right? Would anyone dispute that? Jesus is the leader of the church. He's at the top. Like he runs the show in a very, very real sense for the church. And so when we say that Christ is head, we're saying he's the leader of the church. He makes decisions. He sets direction, and he has responsibility for the church in a real way. So that's one thing that we're saying. He's the leader of the church. The second thing that we're saying is that he is completely united with the church. Don't skip over this. What it means for him to be the head uh, is that we are the body. There's a connection. There's, you know, what happens to a head you chop it off, right? Whenever it's disembodied. It's not complete. Whenever we say that Jesus is the head, it necessarily means he's completely united to the body. 
He's completely united with the church. And so that speaks to closeness. That speaks to conversation, like a give and take. Like whenever we pray, we're not just sending proclamations. It's meant to be an exchange. When we worship him together, it's not just us saying things. It's meant to be an act of relationship. There's a closeness. There's conversation. There's give and take. He personally works with each one of us and draws us close to him. So does one of these two things resonate with you more fully? Like with some of you, the idea of Jesus as leader is the most appealing thing. Maybe because it's easy to understand. He's the boss, he makes the rules, I follow the rules, we're good to go. And so with some of you, the ideal of Jesus as our leader, that is the easiest, most, most powerful, resonating role that we have as him as, as him as the head of the church. Um, But for some of you, it's going to be the other side. The thing that resonates with you, the thing that speaks to your heart, is the idea that Jesus is united with you. That you're not on your own anymore. That, That you have a relationship and a closeness. There's trouble if because one of these two roles resonates with us personally more powerfully, there's trouble here in the possibility that we would start to believe in that one thing, that we would emphasize that one thing to the exclusion of the other. And so among Christians, there are two sides of error. That we would see Jesus not as a leader at all, and only a friend, or we would see Jesus as not a friend, not someone who's close to us, and only the boss. And so we have to strive to find balance between the two, because they're both there. They're both truth. They're both wrapped up in the word. And so how do we define this role? How do we think of Christ as our head in the church? Um, Originally, I thought about bringing in all these verses from all over the scripture and this being another, you know, 45 to an hour minutes presentation. And then I thought maybe it would be just, just be helpful to go through each of the other roles in this passage. Paul doesn't just say Christ is the head. He goes on to describe what that is. What kind of leader, what kind of uh, lover is he? And he gives these different roles. Uh, the first one is Savior. Ephesians five twenty three. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. One of the things that it means for Christ to be the head of the church is that he is its savior. That is, Christ is our rescuer. Now there are images wrapped up in this idea of savior that aren't directly on the page but would have been in the hearts and minds of those listening to this letter being read. And those are images of slavery. 
The idea is, is that we all were slaves to sin and death. That we were being used and abused by our own sinful nature. And that we were trapped, locked in, dirty, broken, slaves. And in the Old Testament, we have a, a, a direct image of that. The Israelites were captured by the Egyptians after a while, and they were made slaves to make bricks for the Egyptians to build their grand things. And they cried out to the Lord, and eventually the Lord sent Moses as the rescuer. He came in, he spoke for the Lord, the Lord worked mighty miracles, and he brought the people out of Egypt, out of their slavery, out of their toil, out of their oppression, and into a close relationship with him. And so whenever we read this and read that Christ is our Savior, hear, hear this, he is our rescuer. We're lost apart from him in our sin, and when we die, we're under judgment. But he came, he lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died a death that every single one of us deserves, so that if we just believe in him, if we would just follow him, if we would just accept him and cry out to him, we wouldn't have to be slaves anymore. We wouldn't have to suffer judgment. Christ is our Savior. The second role is in Ephesians 5.25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus looks at the church in a very real sense as a lover. And I mean that in the purest sense of the word. He looks at us together and he looks at us individually and he has real affection in his heart for us. Maybe sometimes it's hard to think about Jesus in that way, to think about God in that way, but he has real affection for you. When he thinks about you, he isn't annoyed. He loves you. He loves you. And in that love, he's not looking for his own benefit. It's not like a codependency type situation where he shows love to us just so that we would worship him. Right? That's not the, that's not the situation. He's not looking for his own benefit. We know that because of what we read immediately after. Again, Ephesians 5.25, it says he loved the church, and he what? He gave himself up for her. That means he's not just a lover, but he's a self-sacrificer. Like as he looks to the church, he gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives, with no demands and no conditions. While we were yet still sinners, the Bible says, at the right time, Christ died for us. He is a self-sacrificer. Ephesians 5, 26. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He's also a cleanser. Do you see that here? It says he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. 
the implication here is that the church is full of impurities. You and I are full of impurities. Even those of us who look the most clean are a little bit dirty. We're stained. And a lot of us are world weary. We're tired and frustrated with it all. Life is hard. Life seems unfair. And we recognize that we're a part of the problem, not just victims. And it says here that Jesus, as our head, sanctifies us. He purifies us. He makes us clean. In a very real sense, he takes dirty, messed up, broken slaves, and he restores their dignity. Do you, do you understand what I mean by that? Have you ever seen someone that has completely lost their dignity? Um, I used to go to, go to school with a, a guy who later came up to Karis, and he told a story of them meeting with a homeless guy downtown in Columbia who was drunk and covered in his own filth from being sick. And he and some other guys that he was with took him back into a bathroom somewhere and cleaned him up. And the guy just had lost all sense of his dignity. He was just pitiful, just absolutely pitiful, completely broken. We're all that way. And when Christ cleans us and he lifts us up, he restores some sense of dignity to us. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ looks at the church, he looks at the people in the church, and he longs to restore us to perfect relationship with him. Do you see that? He wants to present himself, he wants to present us to himself without spot or wrinkle in complete splendor. Um, the image here is the image before the fall. Adam and Eve in the garden, surrounded by glory and goodness, walking in the direct presence of God, pure. The image, another image here is the image of a bride being presented to a groom. I mean, think of the stereotypical image, you know, of a woman done up in white, glorious, being led down the aisle. Here, Jesus is not only the one who presents, but also the one who receives. A restored, perfect relationship. He's also a nourisher. Verse 29 through 30. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. This means that Christ provides for our health as a church. Um, you've, you've heard the concept of healthy church batted around this place a lot. That's been our goal. That's been our desire to be a healthy church. And where does that health come from? 
Does it come from being really smart about the way we organize ourselves? Does it come from the fact that we have all the right ideas and that we, you know, act certain ways? And missional communities is how we're a healthy church. Fight clubs is how we're a healthy church, right? Does it come from any of that? No, true health, true nourishment comes directly from Jesus and nowhere else. All we can do is put ourselves in a position to receive it, but it comes from him. Christ is the one who provides our health as our head, as our leader, as the one who's a part of us and with us and united to us. He is the one who nourishes us and feeds us. And then the last role that it lists here, again, is in 29 and 30. Not only does he nourish us, but he cherishes us. I try to tell my kids that I love them as often as possible. Um, But it gets boring after a while just saying, oh, I love you. I love you. I love you. How much do you love me? And so sometimes I think about it more in this way. And I'll tell my kids, I cherish you. You're precious to me. In the word cherish, there's this image of being held close, like a treasure. As our cherisher, Christ holds us close, he treasures us, and he protects us. We are at the center of his attention. What does it mean that Christ is the head of the church? Do you see in any of these words, as they're stated and as they're meant to be received, any idea of abuse? It's not there at all. Christ is our leader, as the one who's united with us, as our head, is not the angry boss. He's not the demanding CEO. He doesn't crack the whip, he doesn't yell. He doesn't hit. He loves and he cherishes and he nourishes and he loves and he loves and he loves. We have to be completely rooted in our understanding of who Christ is for us. Um, a couple a couple weeks ago, um, I started reading a book written by St. Augustine, and he's reflecting on his childhood and how he was a complete rascal. Like, he was like the brattiest kid you can imagine, basically, is the picture that he paints for himself. He's dishonest and selfish and awful, and he doesn't understand how God could take someone who was born basically as a snot, like as a little snot, 
and somehow bring him up to the place that he was as a leader in the church. And in the midst of that passage, he kind of stops and he just kind of prays. He's just crying out to God. And he's, he basically says, please show me who you are to me because I don't understand how you could show me this mercy. He's like, teach me who you are to me. What is our relationship, basically, is what he's crying out. Who are you to me? And in the end, he acknowledges, he's like, you are my savior. We have to be rooted in who Jesus is. If next week we're going to come back and talk about the details of men and women. Because who Jesus is changes the way we read the verses we're going to read. It just does. And so we've talked about how, who, who Jesus is to the church. Just real briefly, before we, before we go, how does the church respond to that? What is the church's relationship to Jesus? Number one, the church... People before coming into the church are shell-shocked by sin. What I mean by that is on our own, without Christ, we are caught up in all sorts of sin and sinful tendencies until our brains don't even work correctly. We have a hard time looking at Jesus as even a good thing. In our natural state, we reject the gospel and we worship Everything else, power and sex and control, and we want nothing to do with the one who loves us. We're shell-shocked by sin. But God sends his Holy Spirit through the word, and he breaks through. That's how we become a Christian. The Holy Spirit breaks through in our heart and opens our eyes to see him and his beauty clearly. Clearly, just clearly. So what does it look like for us to submit to him? At first, it's probably going to look messy, right? Because whenever we first become a Christian, we don't know what, it even, what, he, what we're even supposed to do or act or how we're supposed to look. It takes time. Christ works with us and helps us and loves us. And submission at the early point is just being open. It's just being open to him to hear what he would have to say. And by and large, what happens as we open ourselves up to Jesus as a church and as individuals is we get caught up. We get caught up in a love story. Any of you guys like cheesy like rom-coms on like movies romantic comedies matt's back here going no i don't watch those you'll never catch me watching those. i like i kind of like romantic comedies i don't like the awkward ones but you know brie occasionally will talk me into watching a sweet one and i'm like oh that's kind of sweet um a lot of times what happens is like the two don't like each other and then things swirl around and they fall in love and by the end, someone's running to an airport, right, in half the movies. And that's lighthearted, but in a sense, this is what happens in the Christian's life. 
we start out hard, we start to open up, and eventually we get caught up. Submission isn't like, it's not a chore. It's not like I'm, oh, I'm submitting to you, Jesus. We're just, we're just pursuing him because we feel loved by him and we want to love him more. What's the role of the church? It's to get caught up in Jesus, to be changed and transformed by him, to follow him, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, but only so far as every ounce of him is directed towards love in us. We're working towards a goal. It's the last verse I'm going to read, verses I'm going to read. It's out of the book of Revelation. This is at the very end. Uh, John has been lifted up into heaven. He's being given a powerful vision of what's to come. And this is one of the last things that he sees. It says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. This is the goal. The church, glorious and radiant, standing before Christ, pure, lovely. Men and women alike, as we join together equally as members of Christ's bride. Because as, as far as membership of the church goes, we're all in there together. We have a common destiny. At the end of the day, wife, husband, never married, never want to be married. As Christians, this is our destiny. And so our role this week, the application of this passage as we think about who Christ is and who we are, is to, as the passage said before, rejoice and exult and give him glory, leaning into him, not rejecting him as he changes us. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much for the love and the goodness that you show us. We, we surely don't deserve it. We read today that you sacrifice yourself for us. You pour yourself out for us. You're devoted to us. You cherish us. And oftentimes, Lord, we think about how little, how little we've done to respond to all of that. Lord, forgive us for the times when we've pushed you away. Lord, forgive us the times whenever we've loved other things more than you. 
God, we ask that you would birth in our hearts a desire to love you more, a desire to worship you more, a desire to follow you more. Lord, change us. Make us right with you. And in the process, Lord, we ask that you would make us right with others, reconcile us to our brothers and sisters, change us as a whole church. We pray this in Jesus' name.